And welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is Volume 9, Issue 444, Return of the Obra Dinn. Joining me, I'm James Carter in Issue 444, are Midshipman Thomas Quilfeld. Ahoy there. Captain Joshua Garrity. Wow, okay. Yeah. Hello. Ahoy there. <laughs> and the man himself, USS Jacob Geller. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. I'm going to be the sound effects for the game from now on. Uh, oh, I forgot to do the hands in with like, <laughs> We are going to be talking uh, quite a bit, I think, about the uh, sounds and music of this game uh, in good time. In the meantime, uh, Return of the Oberdin is a largely, not exclusively, but certainly centre to it is the narrative experience. So I wanted to get right up front here before we start talking anything about this game and say... If you haven't played the game and you're interested in, please go and play it. We are going to be talking spoilers front to back and every which way we can think about in terms of the narrative. There's other warnings coming up that I want to touch a bit later on, but I thought we'd just say here so we're all safe to talk about any aspects of the story we want to. There will be spoilers. Uh, Developer of this game is Lucas Pope. You will hear his name quite a bit in regards to Return of the Obra Dinn. Um, notably, though we have not yet covered it on Kanan Rince, um, he is the developer of Papers, Please as well, uh, a much lauded game that came out a few years before this one, and has credits in many other games, including Uncharted games and stuff like that. But uh, this Return of the Oberdin is, um, I think, for most people going to be their second of his games, and certainly was for me. We'll get on to our histories with uh, Lucas's games shortly. But that's that's the listed, the credited main developer. Publisher, because the publisher of this game, 3909, is Lucas Pope as well, or at least his company. Um, designer is Lucas Pope. Writer, programmer, artist, composer. All, yes, Lucas Pope. I put some witticisms in our notes because it's a long list of Lucas Pope here. Uh, in the credits, other people are thanked and credited, uh, obviously, as actors, etc. But... For the purposes of this part of the show, it's it feels a little bit like a, a one man show in terms of the uh, the game development. It sounds like the majority of the effort that wasn't Lucas Pope mm. um, was the localization. Um, there's lots of uh, I think there's a video on YouTube that talks about how much of a a coordinated effort to get this game to even work um, overseas, yeah. you know, in non-English speaking territories. So, even though the 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 foundation was Lucas Pope, I think if you're if you're speaking any other language other than English, then there are a few a few other people that are worth crediting. Absolutely, the in fact the largest part of the time in the credits, I think, is uh, with different localization um, yeah. groups. The game was released on uh, Windows PCs and Mac 
on the 18th of October 2018, so a little over two years as of time of recording. And then, notably, um, the game came to consoles. Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One on the 18th of October 2019, so a year later. Um, I assume that was intentional, just happened to be ready around the time and figured, let's release on the same day. The game was received, I think it's fair to say, we'll get to the Steam title of it, but pretty overwhelmingly positively. Open Critic have it listed at an average of 90 amongst top reviewers, with 98% of critics recommending the game. IMDB reviews I, f- I always find interesting because they tend to look a little lower, even though an 8.6 on IMDB is unbelievably high. That only had 167 reviews, so Steam was calling, and... Out of 7,114 reviews on Steam, 96% of those are positive reviews, which gives it the aforementioned overwhelmingly positive rating. Um, Impressive, in all honesty, uh, just to see the the overwhelming again. I'm going to keep using the same word because my vocabulary is shrinking, apparently, as I get older. Um, Just overwhelming response to this game, critically. And in terms of, I think, general sort of public feeling we'll get on to awards in a second but first sales of uh, indie games are generally tough to come by they don't need to release those figures there's no uh, shareholders interest or you know anything like that there's no uh, well Lucas published the game himself essentially so didn't need to to release that information as mentioned the critical consensus which was also borne out in in awards time um, so starting with uh, the game awards Game Award in 2018, sorry, the Game Award in 2018 for Best Art Direction. Um, DICE Awards 2019, six nominations. You'll start to notice a lot of these awards are uh, within industry, so it's developers giving awards to the game. So that's notable, I think. It's um, worth pointing out that that's the case. Um, IGF 2019, this game won Seamus McNally Grand Prize and an award for excellence in narrative. At GDC 2019 Best Narrative and BAFTA Games 2019 Artistic Achievement and uh, an award for game design. So uh, well loved for multiple different aspects. It's not all narrative, it's not all art, it's not all design, but it kind of runs the gamut on a lot of different stuff. So our histories with the game, and if we want to, because we haven't covered papers, please previously on Kane Rins talk about whether we played that game, whether that was an influence on coming to this, I guess. Uh, Jacob, could you kick us off, please? Sure. So I can actually start by saying uh, I haven't played Papers, Please. Um, I, I, It's one of those games that feels so kind of uh, ubiquitous that I I almost feel like I've, you know, kind of osmosed the meaning of it. You know, yep. I know the gameplay, yeah, yeah. I know what people say, but I haven't actually played it. Um, so when this came out, you know, it was interesting to see this kind of groundswell of uh, appreciation of the game, which makes sense if you don't have a marketing campaign, that that's how it would happen. Um, but I think it was um, Mark Brown of Game Maker's Toolkit had, he he called kind of the central mechanic in this, his most, you know, innovative mechanic of 2018, or, you know, his favorite mm. gameplay mechanic or something. And that video came out. Um, and I thought I, I didn't even watch the video because I didn't want to be spoiled on the mechanic. Mm-hmm. But I was like, if Mark you know likes the game that much, then I'll get it. Um, and so mm-hmm. I got it. And and in maybe one of my favorite um, 
kind of cooperative gaming experiences I've had, I played through the entire thing with a friend in in mm. kind of two sittings where he wow. came over and I was like, oh, want to just like try this thing out? And mm-hmm. and we started and played for, I don't know, probably three hours. And, and you know, we're kind of talking through the whole thing. And then he left and I didn't play it until like a week later. And he came mm-hmm. back and we played through the rest of it. Um, and so I think as as we'll talk about more in this, mm-hmm. that really led to my enjoyment. You know, a lot of the enjoyment of the game for me was kind of talking back and forth with my friend because I think I would not have been able to uh, complete this on my own because mm-hmm. I am uh, too dumb. But uh, we'll we'll get into all that later. Excellent, thank you, uh, Josh. How about yourself? When did you come to this game? Yeah, so um, I actually wrote a dissertation on papers please um as part of my um <laughs> game design course but have you played um, of course you did <laughs> so um yeah that, that dissertation i mean like i was 20 when i wrote that mm-hmm. so i'd probably be deeply embarrassed by it now so um, that was a papers please paper a papers please paper yeah um uh it was it was about how uh mechanics can be used to engender um empathy in players mm. um and like that's kind of what i loved about that game right was um the way it managed to uh use what's unique about this medium to uh convey what it's like to be in a situation that a lot of privileged people will will never will never experience firsthand and and I think it was incredibly successful at that so I was um I was excited for this for this game um uh, even though as I mentioned earlier you pretty much had to go to the tig source forums to find any kind of update on it I believe there was a demo that was released at some point but wasn't that no big song or dance was made about it like you either knew about it or you didn't um and yeah, then obviously the reviews started coming out and I, I picked it up pretty quickly soon after that. Um, but it is worth mentioning and, and fans of Kane and Rince will know every once in a while I bring up my partner Kat uh, yeah. because uh, her profession, she's a historian, uh, but more specifically, she's a naval historian. Um, so whereas before in the Bloodborne issue and the, the Witcher 3 issue, she was kind of giving uh, giving her broad insights into uh, history that wasn't really her field, uh, this is exactly her field. <laughs> um, so I had a really unique uh, co-op experience of this where... You know, I think there's like the intended way that you're meant to solve puzzles. Mm -hmm. And then there's the way that Kat was able to solve um, a lot of these puzzles, which I'll get into, Mm -hmm. which just reveals how much research and how much reading uh, Lucas Pope did in preparation Mm -hmm. for this. That this wasn't just like... Oh, it's uh, it's uh, 18th century, you know, pirates, that kind of thing. Just yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah it it was that a lot of thought has been put into this. Mm-hmm. And Cat, like, I think Kat, I really love this game. I think Cat loves it more than I do. She's played through it twice. I've only played through it the once and a little bit in preparation for this issue. Sure. Um. So, Thomas, who was your co-op partner for this game? Uh, so I played this with my wife. I think day one, I was I studied history at university. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember any of it. I studied 
in particular the French revolutions of the 18th and 19th century and mm -hmm. a bit of British Empire. Um, so kind stuff. of relevant as well then. So yeah, I mean, I don't remember any of it, but I, sure. I feel, I feel, it, I feel the context of this game, <laughs> and it and it resonates with me. I, this is my nomination for, for this volume. I hadn't played Papers Please, Please exactly like Jacob. I kind of heard so much about it. I got to the point where I thought that I, you know, I don't need to play that. I did actually recently finally complete it after starting it on three different mm. devices, and it enjoyed it fine. Um, but I remember seeing when they very Lucas Pope very first announced Return of the Obra Dinn. I remember seeing a t tiny picture of it, and um, it looked, you know, the 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 kind of Apple II aesthetic mm -hmm. and the name of it, and just the obtuseness of setting a game in the 19th, early nineteenth century and being an insurance. It just seemed like, oh yeah, okay, all right, he's gone as kind of you know intelligentsia as thinky as he possibly could. Mm. forgot about it for a couple of years and then i must have been on one podcast or another where i heard very strong recommendations about the game yeah got very excited about it and the historical background picked it up day one um got my wife g'd up to to play it together she really loved it she loves murder mysteries and stuff like that we're currently playing uh the phoenix Wright trilogy together mm. as well um so yeah we devoured it it kind of finished it too quickly maybe um and then yeah pay, played papers please recently and then um whacked through another playthrough of this on switch uh just in the last couple of weeks so i'm coming to this game uh very fresh um i paid played papers please uh back in december 2013 which was its year of release but not at release i don't think i think it was a little bit later um and was bowled over by the way it uh, kind of it wasn't shy about its influences and what it was trying to say but you could be brought into the game by the mechanics and then fed the subversion or the the message of it almost without knowing I, i'm not sure anyone would get to that stage because you kind of know what it is going in from pictures of it and descriptions of it and that kind of thing but I really enjoyed it. Mechanically, it really got to me, and narratively that was just icing on top of the, the cake, even though it's integral to the experience. And so this game was on my radar. I I didn't know anything about it until uh, people on podcasts I listened to started talking about it, having uh, started to play it for review, um, and seeing, as was mentioned, images of it, just uh, odd still frame images, even just the title image. Um, to me, that evoked... The, the first thing that evoked was like Game Boy style graphics, which is not strictly speaking the case. It's much more like the home computer era um, than, than Game Boy. But that kind of, um, I guess one bit is the term we'll come to later, but the, the two-tone uh, monochrome almost, I suppose, uh, aspect of it is uh, was what jumped out at, at me. And it, it just it was incredibly striking. I knew I'd get around to it at some point, but... October 2018 is right in the middle of lots of games coming out. Um, by that point, I was pushing everything aside, getting ready for, uh, I think, Hitman 2 at the time would have been coming out in probably a month afterwards. That's where my brain's at with these things anyway. And I just didn't get get around to it. Um, and it was, it very quickly became a, I'll play it when we do it for the, the podcast, whether to be on the podcast or whether to play along with. Um, and this was absolutely the opportunity. Uh, part of me also 
a little bit wanted to wait until it was on Switch. I just kind of felt that have, being an investigation-style game, having it in hand right in front of my face meant I could really focus on it. Not that sitting in front of my you know sitting at my desk in front of my computer wouldn't allow me to focus but i don't know why it just kind of went that way in my head it was one that i was looking forward to on switch so that's where i played it this week and finished it across i guess four evenings worth of play this week probably so that's where i'm at okay i figured we would uh, kick off with a piece of forum feedback i figured we'd hear from ordinary cole scuttle who left a forum post at canonrince.com forward slash forum the walking sim is often compared to the beloved point-and-click adventure, with that genre's bizarro logic puzzles swapped out for environmental storytelling, uncovering narrative through exploration. As much as I love so many of those games, it's great to see a game like this, and I'd say Outer Wilds, that is looking for new ways of experimenting and revitalising aspects of this genre. What's so fascinating about this game is how it never really holds your hand, and yet it's not punishingly stone-faced in its difficulty either. It encourages you to think like a detective and rewards you for doing so. I never played Papers, Please, because as interesting as it sounded, I also kind of felt like it seemed like I knew everything about the experience from reading the basic gist of the game. Having played this, I'm definitely willing to admit I was very probably wrong and should really get to Lucas Pope's previous game at some point. Um, so... This is normally the point at which I try and put in a one-sentence summary of what the kind of genre of this game is, what it is, so that people who don't know what it is but want to listen anyway, thank you, um, I came a little bit unstuck here and ended up writing down a series of games that I thought of in relation to this, but I'm not convinced they're actually very similar at all. Before you do, can I take a, can I take a crack at the genre? Uh, deadly seafaring human Sudoku puzzle. Yeah, it's a strange one. It's uh, part investigation, um, part delving into history, which obviously overlaps. But yeah, Outer Wilds is an interesting one, because until that piece of forum correspondence, it, I guess, was kind of in the back of my mind, but it feels like a different take on a similar I don't. Concept. This is This is much more of a... This is a historical puzzle game. I would yeah. say, yeah. and it feels yeah, yeah. quite different to Outer Wilds because yeah. Outer Wilds, you're having to traverse, you're platforming, you, you know. And it's so Outer much Wilds about the is... physics as well. Yes, exactly. Well, I, yeah. But I think that's, I mean, I I think they are very much connected in the idea that it's it's not, you know, one of the other games you have on this list is The mm. Witness, which I think <laughs> is also, I mean, it's a very clever puzzle game, but what yeah. Outer Wilds and this have in common is that it's kind of one giant puzzle, you know, yep. that, that you solve mm. pieces at a time, but it's it's this kind of incredible clockwork yeah. universe where everything is connected. Her story is another one you have written down that I think mm. is is really good. Um, yeah. And another another potential genre you could put this in, which um, uh, my my friend and video essayist Rez Buten has written about, is mm. uh, Games I Wish I Could Forget where yeah, yeah. where it's yeah, kind yeah, of sure. like a, a one-timer you know that you can play you can play portal you could probably even play the witness several times because it's not like uh you know once you know it you know it forever um but but these ones where it's like the whole thing is one big thing it it really does kind of feel like a you know you only yeah. get one shot at playing this for the first time and it is going to be yeah. you know completely different than every other thing because you only don't know yeah. the puzzle yeah once. yeah if you're playing this for the first time and you want to have a co-op experience don't play it with someone who's experienced it already because oh, yeah, no, sure. um 
I did something similar with Portal 2, and all that happens is the person who's played it just goes, stand here, do this, <laughs> do that. Mm. And even though they won't remember everything, it's enough to just suck the fun out of the experience. It's that shared that shared feeling of being completely stumped that uh, yeah. and that yeah. shared revelation of, oh, my God, it's this. Oh, my God, uh, do, yeah. uh, put this name here. Yes, it's right. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where the fun comes from in the co-op experience. What we haven't mentioned really is that this is a detective game in a, yeah. in a fairly yeah. long line of, of murder, well, very, very long line of murder mystery novels and all, all of that going way, mm. way back. Um, even live murder mystery, uh, you know, where you get actors and it's a sort of a party atmosphere and that kind of thing. So I think um, to call it like a detective puzzler might be slightly reductionist given how high quality the design is and innovative it is. But, you know, I still, there's, there's, plenty I to think, recognize here i mean i mean mark in that mark brown video um where he talks about um why why this game is so successful in in the way that it approaches puzzles he he explicitly says like this is a a detective game it just does a better or maybe not better but just it approaches the way you solve these puzzles in a much different way mm-hmm. than a phoenix right or something like yeah. that where it actually involves a degree of deductive reasoning her story is like the closest like in terms of like mechanics to feeling even though it's much more stationary in terms of like the free form approach approach to deductive reason it, reasoning it's the most similar but aside from that example like i know we we compared this to outer wilds but outer wilds is very much you bump into something and you realize how it fits into the greater the greater picture whereas mm. this you can have all the pieces and you have no idea how they fit together <laughs> for a really mm. long time yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and i think one of the big differences i felt with other um detective or investigation style games is like thinking back to uh, the csi style games where a lot of it's multiple choice and a lot of it is you know there's one right answer and then a bunch of stuff they've put in as wrong at like wrong answers sometimes it's wrong answers that maybe make sense but a lot of times it's just we'll throw in some wrong stuff here or it's a red herring and stuff. Yeah. That never felt like how this game's put together. Didn't feel like here's the, you know, you now see the information that was right. And there was all this misinformation kind of thrown in on top. It just felt like you were trying to see the wood for the trees. There's a lot of information in front of you. None of it's deliberately put there to mislead necessarily it's just trying to make sense of exactly as you said, Josh, all the pieces are here. I need to make sense and work out how it comes together in a way that's yeah. very different to anything I've played. It's not immediately apparent how genius the framing of this is, but I think that that's, that's exactly right. That that you're a detective, not in these scenarios that we're usually accustomed to detectives being in, which is like, trying to find out which of these five people killed the guy you know like mm, that's yeah. we we think of we think of these stories more in kind of like uh the interpersonal relationships but you know having like yeah there's no incorrect information really and there's also not really any any time pressure or just like all of these things that would be the case if it was like you're reporting mm. to a bunch of living people 
and and kind of the the ability to just make a journal you're confident and the the journal knows exactly what is right and wrong and all of these things are really just insurance claims adjuster is not the first place that i would go when thinking about how to make a detective game but but after this it seems like of course you know this is how to solve yeah. all these problems that other games yeah. have faced yeah um I know, I, I I know she she has uh, bias in in this regard, and she she'd want uh, want this to be the case. But Kat um, said that this game was the closest she ever felt to a game having some kind of abstraction that felt like her job, mm -hmm. felt like being a historian. And she's when I said, look, most people on the internet are referring to this as a detective game, not a historian game. What do you feel about that? And she said, well, a historian is basically a detective with no stakes. So yeah. that's basically yeah. uh, what this experience is. Mm -hmm. It's like what Jacob said, like you're a detective without that kind of immediacy of the drama of like, you know, we have to catch the right guy. We have to We have to get justice for such and such. It's just a case of, Okay, let's just figure out what happened. There's no immediate threat. There's no danger here. Let's just find out. We have touched uh, a little bit on the scenario. We've talked about it being uh, 1800s, 19th century, very early 19th century as it happens. Um, the game opens telling you that it's 1807 Falmouth, which is a port uh, town in um, Cornwall, but not one that I would be aware of as significant today necessarily and i think well, of, worth mentioning to yeah. non-british listeners that cornwall is the very very south most southwest tip of yeah. great britain so Good it's point. the long thin bit that comes right off mm. the bottom left of Britain and it's thus, the tippy toe. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's a very good place to sail from and to yeah, yeah. Do dominate the seas, uh, the British yeah. Empire and the East India Company. Um, yes, off to commit atrocities <laughs> in other <laughs> nations. And you thought there wouldn't be politics here. <laughs> um, um, so the the game sets up. You start here, a ship, the Oberdin, thought lost at sea five years prior, has returned. And there is no one living on board. And your your job, as mentioned, as uh, an insurance uh, investigator, essentially, is to go and see if you can work out what happened because the company that you work for, um, a take on the uh, East India Company, um, they need to know how to divvy up any insurance claims uh for and against everyone who was on board so some people may be owed money some people may owe money to the company so yes you you are the not very notable but uh in the game protagonist arm of this company in investigating this a lady protagonist isn't it as well yeah it, it chooses the uh gender of your character um randomly so really? depending on oh. yeah yeah so depending like it it doesn't get never nothing you do will uh, give you a choice. It just picks picks either the uh, female voice actor or the male voice actor, and then you go. Huh. Never knew yeah. that. And you could quite easily play that through twice and not realize that, obviously, by the nature of of that randomness. Yeah. So that's where the the game sets out. But I think it's worth saying we've talked a bit, touched a bit on the themes, both. Um, 
literal and more metaphorical of the the game that this is. But for Return of the Obra Dinn, it's about the death of 60 people on a ship, the death in a man a multitude of different ways for a multitude of different reasons, and it would be remiss of me not to mention that there should be content warnings here for, for all kinds of manner of death by accident, um, death by um, suicide. Um, yeah. You know, the, that is the nature of the game. It's It's... I guess to say it's uh, from the perspective of uh, an insurance investigator sounds to like to make it quite cold, but you are investigating these people's lives as well as their deaths, and therefore it's obviously something to be aware of going forward, um, if that's something you're sensitive to. We've talked a little bit about the visuals. From the forum again, Caliburn M, who we'll hear from several times, I've chopped uh, their post up just to kind of lead us into different sections of uh, this discussion. Caliburn M says, loved the graphics but felt it was hard to tell what was happening at times due to their low resolution. Explosion? Balloon? Jumping fish? Who knows? I also think, uh, kind of along with our our content warnings here, uh, there are scenes in this game that would be... I mean, I guess we had, like, The Last of Us 2 come out this year, so we've seen kind of, like, the goriest and most photorealistic things possible, but, like... There are there are many situations in this that if they were not abstracted to such a degree would be yeah, yeah. truly horrifying oh, to look at. And instead, oh, yeah, it, they kind of I, I, you know, maybe maybe it's a little morbid for me to find it this way. But it, it's those kind of things where it's like you see a medieval painting of like a guy being ripped in half and you're like, oh, that's weird that they mm. chose to show it in this way. You know, that that somehow <laughs> someone getting crushed by a cannon or impaled or, or torn in half becomes this this almost curiosity because it's yeah. so yeah. removed from, you know, the the actual real horror of what that would look like. Yeah. 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 It, it it makes it feel like a historical document. And I, and I think it's really clever kind of leveraging our memory of older tech to imply um, the feeling of oldness to something that is a historical game. Like, and I, I think like this kind of like dis- this kind of presentation is the closest we get to kind of that like old timey black and white visual style that some modern films tend to adopt adopting this kind yeah. of older tech visual style kind of just automatically in your brain goes okay this is a historical curio um and it just frames it differently and i and i do think what the sensation that you're describing jacob is very deliberate because mm. that would be a distraction like being horrified by uh what you're witnessing is not the intent here it's not what lucas pope is going for so having that i don't know about that he he because he does use the first your first so there's a couple of things your first time through memories Mm. um is meant to cause shock and awe to to you because even though um the scene is static your motion through it when you get to uh the first the uh, memory for the doom where the kraken is kind of you know flailing its arms and the waves are coming over that that scene when it just like smash cuts to that you're you're expecting it because you hear the audio and of course the audio plays out against the black screen albeit with subtitles and some of the grisliest gore happens in the audio but you can't see it yeah Uh, but then you get to see it 
Um, and there's a couple of scenes that are really like with the spider crabs and with the kraken that they are supposed to kind of horrify you for a little bit before you then you know realize you're not in danger and nothing's going to come and kind of get you. Yeah, I I don't I didn't feel so I felt like oh okay this is dark like I felt yeah. you know this is unsettling but it's not like I wasn't horrified in the sense that like if this was depicted in a slightly different way I expect I would be mm. um it did I do feel like I I had to and the separation of the audio from the visuals as well actually uh, uh made that uh, feeling even more pronounced that kind of distance mm. in terms of what was going on um it did feel like it, it did feel like i was i was just viewing it through viewing it through a, a very um like like i was reading like a text document you know a text document account of what yeah. happened or yeah. draw or more accurately like drawings of a of a trial or something like that it's the immediacy of the the fret and the the situation was muted i still felt it and i felt empathy for the and the, there's definitely a profound sense of sadness that i felt for a lot of these characters throughout this but that kind of immediate horror that i i think you're you're touching on tom i don't think i ever felt that it, for me it was it was not horror but true true shock and awe in a way that i don't yeah. think if you told me that i would feel these things while playing this game you know just and just showed me like the visual style i would be like there there's no way but i i think it it is truly a kind of transcendent moment after you you complete the tutorial which is like three guys shooting and stabbing each other and then the next death is a kraken and and, <laughs> and you have no i mean like truly nothing in the game up until that point has has even indicated that unless maybe you went through all the like possible deaths um but i i there there's a level of of kind of cinematography to how these things yeah. are presented that really it's very thoughtful in that in in that death which is which is like someone having a mast fall on them you start very close in and you're like ah someone had a mast fall on them and then you look up and there are 50 foot tentacles reaching over the side of the ship yeah. and and it is yeah it's not I, I i would not say i'm you know horrified by it in in more than just a very you know academic sense of oh that would have been scary but it is truly unexpected and the way that the game yeah. actually pulls off kind of the same trick more than once i think is really you know because it's like you start with a crack and you're like well nothing else is gonna surprise me <laughs> but in fact several things did surprise me <laughs> playing through the rest mm, of it yeah. for me i think the the court drawing the court drawing um kind of comparison holds true but for for me what i kind of felt was you know, if you're at a lecture and it's an old style lecture where they literally have a slideshow, but it's like one of those old push downs, like you've got the slide and you actually have to push it down in front of the light, where you would get a lecturer or a presenter who was describing something and then they wanted the moment of you seeing it to come afterwards. It felt like that to me, where the, the horror was not supposed to necessarily be in the same way. It's I mean, it's far from if this was rendered by NetherRealm Studios. 
in the Mortal Kombat style. <laughs> this the 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 violence that's on display here would absolutely be something they could represent in that style of way that would um it would be horrifying levels of gore. And it's not that, but I, I found it much more uh as Jacob said, it's a shock factor. Uh we have uh at work a fire um marshal who comes in and gives his fire talk, fire safety talk, you have to go to it once every year. And it's the anecdotes he tells, and then and here's the slide of what it looked like, and here's and it's never it's it's supposed to shock you about the reality of the in this case historical situation these people are in. Someone goes onto deck just to find another human being they care about and just gets crushed. Just like that's one of the early deaths in the game. Just gets crushed because wrong place, wrong time. That's just the situation you're in because it's dangerous. That's horrifying, but it's not to do with horror as a genre that you would expect in in video games or in in any other kind of media it's just the the shock of what life finding out what life and death was like for uh people that argument slightly undermined though by if you're at all arachnophobic mm-hmm. the scenes with the spider crab oh, yeah. monster people the first time i saw that i am slightly arachnophobic mm. i was i was horrified it was this did scare me and it yeah. continued to creep me out. Just the size of it. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah, think there's sure. a, there's something brilliant going on with the scale of the ship and the fact that uh, uh, Lucas Pope leads you th- through the way he, he kind of pieces together oh, sure. memories. Yeah. He does lead you up and down the boat into every nook and cranny. Mm-hmm. So you really learn the scale of the, the, the ship and the, yeah. and the people on it and the living quarters and all of that. And so when you see the spider crabs... Um, they are massive, and they mm. must, and they, and, and like he positions feet in weird, in creepy places to show that they'd be like scuttling down and coming down through these holes and shooting yeah, yeah. these deadly spears into people. It's scary. It's, it doesn't matter that they're not moving. I, I, yeah, yeah. I still don't feel quite that level of kind of historical detective detachment. I feel like that is a scary thing. I'm yeah. freaked out because if you were fighting that that creature in like serious sam you'd be in a giant flat arena wouldn't you and strafing around it and blasting it to hell um so i think that's just really effective design monster design um we talked a bit about the way that the art design kind of leans into this one thing that i found was um really interesting was when i thought of what a monochrome graphical style one bit graphical style i've seen it referred to as um for obvious reasons because it's two-tone therefore uh, one bit um it comes in a variety of flavors that evoke different types of screen be it macintosh ibm uh, commodore 64 there's a bunch of different filters you can put on it but they all have similar effect it just is whichever is more pleasing or um feels nicer to you be that for nostalgia or be it just for the particular um the particular colors that are chosen for it um, but it uses a heck of a lot of stipple shade- shading, which ob- helps obscure and and um, make it difficult to know what you're looking at, but also adds a lot of depth to a game that can at times look very flat because of the, the, the two-tone colour scheme. I thought it was really interesting, the degree of uh, texture that, that it, this game's art design manages to bring to the fore. There's some there's some really subtle touches that I really like um with the your player character. Um the like 
the indication that something is interactive, just the kind of like really like smooth reaching out of the hand to grasp grasp yeah. things, yeah. Um, and the kind of flick of the uh, the 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 watch, the the death watch, yeah. all of that stuff. Like it's it's very calm, it's very professional, and it's a really good showcase of like there's there's so little animation in this game, but that what what animation there is is still kind of used to inject a little bit of personality and a little bit of like insight into the the mind of your character right let's lead lead forward into a bit more about the gameplay we've touched on some already but i'm sure we'll have some more to say we have a forum post from the baboon baron who says what a brilliant game made all the more amazing given that it was the work of nearly one person that sounds strangely like it was the work of slightly less than one person. Um, <laughs> um, the graphical style took a while to get used to, but its minimalism lent to the detective element. I was gripped by the atmosphere, how Lucas Pope makes such gripping, all-consuming games I will never know, but he has a true gift for building tone and mood. A couple of small points. The moon logic of how exactly someone died did get my back up. The difference between spiked, speared, clawed, or devoured meant the difference between correct and incorrect and introduced an element of trial and error. Also, we were revisiting the same scenes again and again, and including that ability directly from the book would have made that a lot easier. But what a game. Cannot recommend it enough. I wish I could play it for the first time again. Yeah, we've already <laughs> agreed on that. Um, perhaps it will inspire a whole new run of detective games. Uh, this was an interesting one, I thought. Uh, actually, there is... I have been onto the wikia to check because sometimes I got something right and didn't know how I'd got it right. So the wikia for this game actually is really good retrospectively to go on and see how you would identify someone. Actually, it is more flexible than you might think in terms of how specifically and what specifically kills someone and what it will accept as a right answer. That criticism, I've thought a lot about that actually. Like, why can't you jump back into a memory oh yeah sure from, from the book directly yeah. from from the book i mean obviously we, we're not going to say that lucas pope oh, just it, it didn't occur to him it's obviously a, a choice sure. it's a yeah, design yeah. choice and i think it is frustrating but i think when it does it's a bit like sam barlow with um her story and telling lies and like deliberately limiting the number of videos you can see limiting how fast you can go through them and that kind of thing um especially sam barlow was talking about telling lies i won't spoil anything for that game but he was talking very much about wanting to limit people's options ability to to skip through the videos mm. such that as if they were sitting with a vcr going back and forth anyway i think i would guess the purpose that lucas pope had here was that he wants you to get to know the ship and to really pay attention to the ship both both in 1807 and in 1802 and thus forcing you to go back to a, you mm. know a distant deck uh to a distant point and look at the map and find out it even puts a little you know pointer of where your feet are pointing so you can yeah. orient yourself mm. if once you really get into it and that's the thing that's easier when you have a second playthrough that's the quick thing yeah. that's quicker is moving back and forth between the memories but i think it's very deliberate choice to force you to know the ship because once you start to engage with the ship and the different levels, you start to um, uh, 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 make connections about people's station and their roles on the ship and yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. So I think it's very deliberate in that way. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's a similar uh, thing to, you know, when when you're in a memory, especially for the first time, mm. it sometimes feels like it it makes you stay there probably longer than I would choose if I had a button to say like, OK, yeah. I'm done now. Yeah. Um, but that, again, feels very intentional and that like because I have to stay there an extra 30 seconds, it means that I'm far more likely to stumble onto one of the other little details that's hidden in the scene. And I think, yeah, I think having more control over the experience would, would in one of those kind of weird uh, inverse ways actually make us worse at noticing the things that he wants us to notice <laughs> you know that yeah, being yeah, forced yeah, sure. to go through all of it is kind of the way of of making connections that you wouldn't have otherwise yeah and and it um it i think does two things you can see on the map in the book where the the trails for each chapter are and it kind of leads you from one death to the next so you can always kind of move around the ship to find the particular body that you want to go and investigate but I think the other thing it does is not just help you explore the space, it slows you down, which is exactly your point, I think, there, Jacob. It's I could quickly run around and use my uh, trigger to zoom in on the person, see where they are in the picture. Okay, I've done that for all 12 people that are in this, this memory. Okay, can I go now and just stand there tapping my foot? But by forcing me to... Not forcing me, but by uh, keeping me in that memory for longer, it, it invites me to think... What else am I supposed to notice here? It can't just be the people, because yes, tracking people through the different memories and through their uh, journey through the ship is important, but it needs to be in service of something else. And it's like noticing the details that you might not notice unless you take the time to look past the person that's lying in the hammock and see the number that's on the hammock, as an example, to open up all the doors of the various cabins and think, there's nothing in here, what's it useful for? And... You know, a classic example, pipe hanging on the wall. That's important. You need to know that stuff. Uh, or I needed to know that stuff. Um, so it forces you to slow down. And having to go back through the ship time and time again, again, slows you down, but forces you to move through that space and move through that, take that time to really let your thoughts breathe. Particularly if it's a co-op situation where it gives you time to talk to someone and you're not rushing on to the next thing. You're sitting in the moment a little. This game ended up being split into two halves for me, and I found the first half quite frustrating. Um, partly because I wasn't taking the time that the game was affording me, and I was kind of like, oh, I just have to open up the chapters at this stage. Like, I know what's happening, but I'm going to have to come back to this stuff later, because I can't do the detective work now. I don't have the information. I started this game like I did her story, or, or ended up doing with her story, with a notebook next to me thinking, right, I've got to start taking notes. And you can't bloke with moustache and a striped top it doesn't work you don't have the information to make a note about this person uh, you need to use the the in-game stuff to be able to do that and you have to do it afterwards i find i couldn't find a good way to make notes that's not to say i didn't end up making notes about some of the guesses i was taking later on to try and fill a group of three um kind of fates um i definitely did but that first time through, I was like, well, I can't take notes, so let me just unlock all this. Let me just unlock all this. I'll see the spectacle of what's going on, get the beats of the story, and then I'll go back through it and sort that. And forcing me to take time actually was important because I think it would have been more frustrating um, for me had it had the game allowed me to rush through that first part even more because it would have felt like, why aren't you just letting me get to the detective stuff? And that wasn't the point of the opening bit. 
it did lead to a bit of a an imbalance for me in which part of the game I found more interesting overall, uh, particularly mm. mechanically. But there was definitely a, a divide there in terms of the opening up of the chapters and then going back into the the memories afterwards. I think you 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 kind of want to say to someone who's going in for the first time that yeah, there's a balance. Try and resist the urge to rush through and open up everything and then mop back, mm. but also try and resist trying to nail everything first time oh, as yeah. well. And you're absolutely right about writing things on a piece of paper. I think my wife and I like to do that anyway. We did the first time, but I did find the second time you don't necessarily need to. You can do it all with the book and with a bit of trial and error and just observation. Um, and, and especially the second time I noticed once you unlock everything in one chapter, doing that chapter is is really quite enjoyable actually like the doom or something just flicking back in the book and then maybe going back to a memory is a good way to do the trial and error side of things Um, but but you you kind of want to tell someone who on their first playthrough is like do move through it and open stuff up but also stop and try and note in the book things that you're very sure about and use the hedging options where you can just sort of put you know um, unidentified top man um, as a sort of placeholder piece of information. Right. I'm, I need to dive in and talk about my unique experience yeah, for of sure. playing this Absolutely. game based on what you're saying. Um, so one of the, the first uh, unfortunate mm-hmm. cases you encounter is William, the first bait. Yep. And... If you're based on watching videos like Mark Brown's video, if you're not playing this with a historian, <laughs> you figure out you figure out that William like this is William, the first person you encounter, this is William by hearing Abigail's um uh no, not Abigail's, hearing the captain's uh monologue before he commits suicide, um, and saying to Abigail, I killed your brother and then deducing from you know her last sure. name okay it's william let's first mate right got it um so I, my experience <laughs> of this was uh oh we sorry cat we don't like his name his face is blurry we don't have enough information hold on josh <laughs> bring up bring up the bring up the bring up the picture where's he standing what hat is he wearing Okay, he's first mate, <laughs> and then we got it first time. Like, just got the, yeah. we just got him straight away, and this was a trend that continued throughout the whole experience. <laughs> oh, that's a boatswain's whistle. <laughs> but he, so he's the boatswain. Wow. He's wearing a gunner's hat. Okay, that's a so, gunner. So what you're saying, um, Josh, is you used a guide for this game. <laughs> <laughs> I basically had a guide sitting next to me throughout that the whole is, experience. That is a bit of a shame because I I found that getting into the minutiae of the, the the ship roles was one of the most fun things. Honestly, as as much as maybe I, I deprive myself of <laughs> of a educational experience, mm. I think it's just a testament to just how well researched yeah. and well yeah. put together this ship and this crew is that somebody who is an expert in the field could solve this without any of the information that is you know the average player would use to to reach those conclusions um and and like because while we're on this topic like i i like cat 
is so impressed with the way that this ship is put together. So like one of the first things she does when she's exploring a space is where are the toilets on a ship? Mm. I should say exploring a space in the ship is where are the toilets? There's no toilets. Where are they pooing? Where's the toilet? <laughs> and then here you can find the toilets. Where's the cables for the, the anchor? There's no cables for the anchor. It's just an anchor sitting there. Oh wait, you can follow the whole cable network yeah, from yeah. the top of the ship all the way down to the bottom. Like all of this stuff. Like the fact that there's like a bosun's whistle in there. Like the fact that the you know the tags on people's on on people's hammocks, all of that stuff. Like the fact that they they went to the effort of like having a slightly adjusted version of the East India Company logo printed on things. Like just like that level of attention to detail is so incredible and it makes all the fantastical stuff it makes all the 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 weird uh the magical realism stuff mm. and and the in you know the 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 murder the mystery all of that stuff it makes it feel grounded in a reality like the fact that that this stuff is is uh so well put together and so well researched it's just an incredible piece of work in that regard but he backs that up with some obvious clues for people who are paying attention like you can see the gunner's mate throwing a pile of guns to someone at one point yeah, all of yeah. the officer's mates can be seen with their officer in a different yeah. scene kind of running towards the commotion so there are more si you know simple signs as well as all of that lovely detail so so you don't even need to know all of that stuff as long as you're kind of taking an interest in the roles of the ship yeah well and and you know even though i did not play this next to a historian part of <laughs> part of the fun that we had was looking up not a walkthrough, but just information about mm -hmm. ship positions. You know, we'd be like, okay, what what is a topman? You know, like what yep. what is their role on the ship? And I would love to see the the Google trends for many of the words in this game. <laughs> you know, like that suddenly uh, bo boatswain goes to like you know higher than it's ever been Googled before. <laughs> um, but it but it was fun to to feel like it's like I'm not looking up Obradin spoilers. I'm just, you know, figuring yeah. out the historical context that this insurance adjuster would clearly already have if they're doing this part of of the ship. And I love I love doing that kind of like extra textual research, you know, that's actually probably could have figured it out anyway. But but there was that opportunity and mm -hmm. uh, and I so gladly took it. And it was one of the really, you know, kind of unique experiences of playing this game. Yeah. And I don't think we should leave it to audio to say that the accents um, play a huge part um, in in that so that, you know, the officers are obviously of a certain poshness and mm -hmm. their voices. If you come from the British Isles, it is obviously easier to discern, you know, Welsh from Scottish, from Northern, etc. And And, you know, so clearly so much thought has gone into that. And has also gone into the class of the different people on the ship. Um, that's just that kind of attention to detail goes all the way through. But I think he puts in so many kind of correlated clues so that if you couldn't hear any of the voices in this game, I'm fairly sure there's enough clues 
still to get everything right in the game. So I think he he it's between you know what's actually happening in the scenes, uh, costuming uh, that the the there is some kind of um, yeah. ethnic extrapolation of like what different people from different countries would look like here, what their build would be like as different roles on the ship. You know, top men would be smaller, lighter, and able to get up and down the rigging much first faster, whereas um, just normal seamen are bigger and burlier and have got to lift and yeah. haul things. Yeah. Um, so, and just if you're paying, yeah, you just have to pay attention. If you're looking at the the drawing, uh, uh, the, that's the fundamental kind of key thing for identifying people, it is fairly obvious that the officers are all standing together. You know which one's the captain. They're all wearing hats that looks like officer hats. Not that hard to um, to work out. And that gives you a nice starting place to then mm-hmm. start to to work other things out. Um, the but you know, I think the the cook or the butcher wears an apron, that kind of thing. Yeah. So so yeah, and it's just so fantastic to have the extra detail yeah. on the the voices, for instance, but also the simple details, the readable stuff that someone who wasn't historically enabled <laughs> would would still be able to see mm. and hear. Yeah, just just because you're you're touching on this, the the other point I want to make is like the crew is diverse, right? Very. Which is historically yeah. accurate. I think, um, you know, uh, Britain has a tendency of whitewashing its history. Um, like a really egregious example of that was the Dunkirk film where like a huge contingency of Sikh soldiers were sent to Dunkirk, but everyone in that film was uh, an English officer, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, like representing like a crew, like how it would be obviously it's majority scottish english welsh but there were people from all over the globe on these ships and and having those people there is important the the ethnicities do lead to kind of a an interesting experience that i i would not (laughs) at all go as far as to to call racist but there is the weird thing of like well, I know it's someone from this nationality, and then and then you kind of like, <laughs> especially if you've got you've got two names that you're pretty sure of, and you need a third. I I did go through and kind of like, is, is it this name? No, is it this name? No, and and like you know because you know they're they're not trying to subvert twenty first century expectations. You know, it's not like they've named people yeah. anachronistically. Um, and and so it is, you know, I think that there are enough clues that you could totally go through the game and not do that. You know, that that there are many different things that point to, uh, you know, who these people are and, and how you can find their identities. But, you know, speaking as, as a, a dumb guy who missed a lot of the clues, certainly, you know, there there was a level of kind of like weird uh fitting people into these categories and i i don't like i don't have a point about that you know i'm not going to say if it's good or bad it was just kind of a weird feeling thing to do no sure and and it it has uh, almost a ring of the sort of um classification techniques that were used in criminal investigation back at the early 1900s where it was kind of thought if you can um detail these 10 uh, measurable facts or or provable facts about a person you can uniquely identify them and it has that air of this is eugenics but just slightly earlier 
of kind of, yeah, I'm going to compartmentalize all these people that look this way. They're over there. I don't need to worry about them because that's not who I'm looking at at the moment. Um, and yeah, definitely, I, I find myself going through, there were times where with the Formosans, the names, I, I didn't, I don't have the tools at my disposal to even determine a male name from a female name. So I had no clue as to which one those, which of those uh, names was correct. So in one case, I ended up saying, okay, I've got two two Formosans. I know one's one, one's the other. I'll just plug them in either way. And it happened to be that I got one the right round and that rung up three fates. And absolutely is that kind of sitting down afterwards thinking, how much racial profiling am I essentially almost doing here? And it, it's... It's not because I'm not, I guess it is, but I'm not making any judgments on the people. It's just trying to find ways to pick people up, uh, you know, separate people. And it is uncomfortable. Well, and I guess the other the other thing is in this game, you have a magic journal that tells you if you're right or not. But you could imagine in real life, you know, in, in whatever kind of analogs of these situations happened, there would certainly be a kind of like, well, I know that all the top men were from here, so I'm just going to kind of throw them all in the same category. And yeah, yeah. And, and and then, you know, they it, it it didn't really affect their job of if they actually got everything perfectly right or not. And so it's, you know, well, one of yeah, these kind of like yeah, perfect yeah. universes of the game <laughs> that that, you know, points to the very imperfect yeah. way mm. of doing this in real life. So one more thing on that. I do yeah. I do think it's good, you know, that that um uh, I've been I've been hearing discussions, you know, on Waypoint and such about how like new Star Wars games have like, oh, look how diverse the Empire is, like the, <laughs> those sorts of things. Where it's like we let anyone be in our fascist dictatorship, and so I think it's you know I I, I really appreciate that there was consideration of these things put into the game, and and just like you can follow the anchor cords down to the you know bottom of the ship you can probably learn about you know kind of which people got to play which positions in the ship so overall i still i still yeah, think yeah, it's a, a yeah. pretty brilliant kind of piece of of historical fiction i i don't know the answer to this question but i'd be really curious to uh, uh look this up after this recording the uh, insurance payments are they like massively different depending on what country the the people are from because hmm. i have to imagine the people who are like you know oxbridge english get the high payouts and the and the people from from new guinea are possibly not getting as much money yeah there's i don't think there's any the interesting thing is there's no slaves on the ship right yeah. i don't know whether there would have been uh or not depending on the type of ship and the crew, etc. But it, I think it's just done by role rather than any kind of... Right, okay. I think. Yeah. Which guessing. in turn obviously has a racial and class divide to it as well. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for yeah, the purposes yeah, of yeah. this, it's of by course. it seems to be weighted by um, by yeah, a position on the ship rather than anything else. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think the, the other thing the Magic Journal telling you you're right does is there's a naive reading of a historian's role, or not even a historian's role, um, the role of uh, an insurance investigator at that the time that this game is set to say, oh, well, if they didn't have the information, they would have held back from making a judgment until they had more information at hand at which to make the correct call. Of course not. It's perfectly possible that they would have just said, oh, well, that must be this person. 
we're going to assume that they killed them. As we see, there's a, there's a um, uh, an incorrect um, accusation and um, judgment of murder made in the in the game. It's one of the the big early things that you see happen is someone is executed for a murder they did did not commit. And it's perfectly possible to, that that would have happened here because you need to make a call. And what the magic book helps us to do is avoid having to do that by telling us we got it right. And so it actually takes away some of that inclination that we maybe have now, unconscious bias, or certainly someone back then may have had because it's my job to allocate a blame or responsibility or, um, you know, just to put... Uh, to draw a line onto this whole thing, and how much would their own biases have coloured that? Well, the a- answer obviously yeah. is massively, and we're, we're well, yeah, spared I mean, some of that, I suppose, uh, by the game. Obviously, all the way up to the nineteen nineties, paper record, and still now, paper records are incredibly important in, in at every level of society, um, and of course throughout history there's going to be a difference between reality and what's recorded on physical mm. paper with all of that that suggests so in history this insurance person would have you know surely would have been you know just making stuff up just to get the job done get to try and save the insurance company money etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. but uh, on the flip side this is a fantasy game most of these deaths are by kraken magic you know burning to death from a magic shell that kind of thing and we have a magic po- pocket watch so i don't think we can we can't hold it to that no no that, sure yeah kind, i don't think we can read too much yeah, into yeah, that yeah. you know the, the the mindset of the insurance yeah. um adjuster Okay, let's uh, wrap up a bit on some of the gameplay. Uh, we need to talk about the... We touched a little bit on the audio, but I want to dig into it a little bit, particularly with the, the people we have on this recording. So, <laughs> uh, another um, post from Caliburn M on the forum, who says, Gameplay-wise, Oberdin was extremely clever and well done, apart from the fact you couldn't enter the dioramas from the book once you'd seen them. Searching for the right body just felt clumsy and awkward. The only other fault I found was that to solve many of the deaths, you needed to notice the hammock numbers. Failing to spot this would probably require you to fall back on guesswork. Overall, though, a very clever and well-made game. I I could not find the hammock numbers the second time I played through. I didn't notice them the first time, didn't need them. And then I was looking for them the second time. I couldn't even see them. Uh, isn't that isn't that weird? Yeah, I, 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 I can't explain that, I'm afraid. Um... Yeah, yeah, they're there. And but I think the fact that you didn't need them speaks to yeah, there are multiple ways to go about this and if you miss one thing it doesn't mean that you're excluded from as Jacob has said, it doesn't mean you're excluded from being able to make um make deductions another by another route. Um and sometimes mm-hmm. it did for me come down to making a guess and putting putting things one way around and then swapping them the other way around and seeing which one triggered a correct um set of three fates. I think that's part of the game. Part of mo- one of the most fun parts of the game for me is is t- two things. One, observing that that okay, the the two Indian seamen share you know are next to each other on their in their hammocks, that kind of thing. And then secondly, doing the guesswork in the book and and yeah, just triggering one or the other. I found that extremely satisfying because when you nail it, it's such a satisfying kind of um, you know. It literally says, "Well done." in the most mm-hmm. punctuated way yeah. it possibly yeah. can. 
um, that, that I enjoy brute forcing it and 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 yeah. guesswork being a part of it. I, I found that a really enjoyable part of the game. I do also. I'll I'll be the uh, the voice of uh, people who are perhaps yelling at the podcast that it, it's not. It is not strictly deductive reasoning, uh, and and I'm thinking about this because I watched the Matthew Mitosis video on on this game earlier. That mm. it is more inductive because you are making assumptions based on incomplete knowledge. Uh, so so if yeah, there's yeah. guesswork, you know, then then we're doing inductive reasoning, yeah. not deductive. It does not affect anything that we've said about the game. I just thought <laughs> I would be annoying, but, but, but also without the. The rule that when you get three correct, you get a ding, 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 well done, pat on the back. Without that, you can't do any of this. So it very much is yes. brute forcing that. It's using tools that the game has given you, and it's perfectly reasonable, but it makes a very different experience. And as I said, where I made guesses and got it right, absolutely felt good, got a nice um, well done screen, then went to the wiki to try and work out what I'd missed that would have allowed me to identify that person. So I was very much circumventing evidence that was in front of me that I just hadn't noticed or hadn't put together in that way. And that's a very different, uh, as you said, Jacob, perfectly, a different approach to this gameplay than not necessarily is intended, because it's I think it's perfectly intended that you can do it this way, but it's a very different, uh, you're coming at it from a different angle. Um, there, there's two deaths where it feels, that stick in my mind where it feels like he's trying to catch you out for a bit of fun one is the one where you're stuck on the outside of the ship you can't if you go back a couple of memories you see the guy's been spiked i think in the gut mm. or something and then he crawls round, leaves a huge trail of blood <laughs> collapses against a wall so you're like okay well he must have died by spearing and then you realize the guy across the way has shot him but then you've got to work out who the guy across the way is because yeah. you can't see very well so then you're like okay who is that in a previous memory so I thought that was a fun one where he's deliberately trying to force you oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to go around the houses. Um, and then the other one is the one where the, the Formosan is hanging up and there's like five people shooting him and you're trying to look at the path of the bullets, um, whose bullet actually went through him. And if you don't know who that person is yet, you've got to remember to come back and try out I, some I names. I spent a not inconsiderable know. amount of time searching through the code words, if you like, to try and work out how you could dictate or how you could detail someone had been executed. To me, it doesn't matter whose bullet hit him. I know for an insurance investigator, it should. To me, it doesn't matter. Every person that fired that gun is responsible for his death, whether or not their bullet hit him because they were part of a firing squad. Yeah, so well, it's, would... it's one of those those interesting things about like for assigning sure. responsibility Absolutely. in a way yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. well, was it really? You know, like yeah, who was yeah, responsible yeah. for that Kraken attacking the ship? You know, was it the Kraken <laughs> or was yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. So it, it that broke my brain a little bit because I was looking furiously through and then suddenly realized the only thing I could do was shot and I had to say someone. So, yeah, I went back to have a look. But, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting uh, kind of situation to be put in. Also from the forum, Toon Scotoon says, one of the high school students I teach recommended the return of the Oberdin to me after I told him I'd beaten Cuphead. I don't really know why they thought my enjoyment of the latter <laughs> would make me take pleasure in the point-and-click-ish nautical fantasy murder mystery, there's a genre, set in the early 1800s, but I'm glad he did. Oberdin was immersive and compelling in a way I hadn't expected, though it obviously takes place well before the invention of the microfiche machine, 
there was something about how it asked me to pore over these grainy images on my Switch that made me feel like I was a detective in the not-too-long-ago pre-internet era sequestered in the bowels of some college library sifting through a mostly forgotten backlit text. I suppose that student, having heard my Cuphead commentary, might have taken a leap of faith, not unlike the ones you you have to occasionally perform when you are playing Oberdin, and assumed I liked the challenge, albeit in a very different one than uh, you find in the aforementioned run-and-gun title. Oberdin certainly did tax my brain, and once or twice I succumbed to the siren song of internet guides to solve parts of the puzzle. There's a reason I teach literature and not forensics, I suppose. Still, when I did sort something out on my own, and the string instrument signaled I'd identified the who and how of three more digital souls, I felt that special, silly thrill of vanity that truly great puzzle games provide. It, it's worth, just very quickly, mm. the way that the book fills in and is and is flips around and the effects on it are brilliant i find the book to be just a masterpiece of design it's so well considered all of the tools you have at your disposal for deduction i enjoy being in the book and playing the game there as much as walking around i yeah i think it's really indicative of how important the style is to this game that Mm -hmm. that you know if you stripped everything away uh, I mean, it would still probably be an interesting puzzle game. It's hard to even think of what this game would be without the style. But I think that all of the, you know, how fun the music is and how satisfying it is to see those, like, next three lines fill in and all of that, you mm. know, are are things apart from just the puzzles to keep you going. So, you know, if you get to a place where you feel stuck and you're really not enjoying you know going back and forth through the memories anymore you still have all these other things of, of bells going bong 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 and and you know different <laughs> different things happening and, and just like if this game was less stylishly made i think it would be far less fun you know that that the all these aesthetic elements really add up to you know kind of form the experience of playing this game as mm-hmm. much as solving the puzzles do yeah so we have talked um a little bit about the voice snippets that we hear and we've talked uh, quite a bit now about the fates complete sting the well done you get every three times and the last one that you get is uh, obviously very satisfying but we haven't touched much on the score and i came to write some notes about this and realized i was completely out of my depth so i wrote orchestrated chip tune question mark help and I put it to the three of you to discuss. Not not chip tune, okay. just kind of. So so um, the Final Fantasy VII remake this year had a team of composers using the most expensive orchestral sam- digital sampled instruments yep. to make you think that they'd recorded a, an orchestra and they didn't. Lucas Pope is very happy to use extremely not expensive um, orchestral samples, and that is entirely the charm of it. Right. So the strings sound cheesy in a really fun way, and he's got them doing these these ostinatos, these repeated mm-hmm. patterns. These did 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 did, and it it's just charming and fun and gives this vibe. It's just as stylized mm. musically as the graphics. Um, and and for instance, he uses the Hans Zimmer, the bram, the big kind of horn, um, heavy yeah, yeah. foghorn notes. Except here, it's almost more allowed because we're on a boat um than it is in uh, <laughs> yeah, an inception sure, or whatever um but it's just fun i mean he's having he's having fun the music is kind of 
satirical almost. I don't think it's particularly... I don't know how much depth he's gone into research of the music of the time. I think he's just having fun with it and making it satisfying and tuneful and bouncy and very... He's using orchestral instruments, particularly strings, to be percussive in a lot of places. Exactly like the the foreign person said, like when you get the, the three things right, it just comes in with this pizzicato sound. It's not the most expensive sound in the world. It's not going to fool anyone that it's a real string quartet or whatever, but it's just perfect and it's just loud and, and, and hits you in the right way. I am really impressed by the... Um... I, I don't know if the, you know, if it even is, you know, Foley work or, or how the kind of like sound effects for the things happen, but it's, it's pretty bold, I feel like, to have scenes where it's nothing but audio, um you know, and it's like you have voice lines, but you also have like, okay, well, it sounds like one guy is walking and another guy is being dragged. And then, you know, like you, you make assumptions based on that as much as anything else. And, and while everything else in this game i think is you know a lot of it feels very one person and kind of like uh, cheap uh, and i mean that in a loving way the the actual audio design of the scenes is really impressive in kind of its its thoroughness and you know that they it feels like they can communicate what it would sound like if the the you know inner ship uh, was being attacked by a bunch mm. of crabs or whatever mm. Um, it, it definitely had that, and I think it, that's partly due. So I've seen criticism of the voice work, and I've seen a lot of praise for the voice work, and I think the sound design goes in hand with that, where it is very much that style of radio play. And for some people, that's an amazing thing to have in this game that is not a, a massive budget, but they were able to. Lucas Pope and the people he worked with were able to put together something that felt very true to that style of entertainment. Um, but for some people, the archers or is my go-to for it is, is the very definition <laughs> of something that is just oh, not uh, high quality, my... but clearly is very good at what it, it does, you know, and, and I, I can see why someone would listen to a voice in this and feel like it felt like that style of radio play production and would think that was good and equally well would think, oh, that's not for me. Um for Jacob and the Americans, the Archers is a, a rural. It's set on a farm, um, ta- farm village, and they use very. It's the most boring. It is. My mum used to thing. make us listen to it every dinner for a decade. <laughs> they use fake cow sounds, so you always know when they're standing outside because they use the same bloody cow and pig sounds every time. Very limited And, and I must say, I, I I really enjoyed my first playthrough for the the voice acting and the sound effect. My second playthrough, I did notice there's some quite wooden delivery it's slightly odd delivery like misdelivered um like the intonation and the emphasis on certain words that's a bit confusing actually so so i'd say mixed on the second playthrough when i'm really paying attention i'd say it's quite mixed voice acting i mean i mean for me it it it, uh plays a little bit into the kind of court court uh drawing thing again where it's slightly distanced. It's not quite as, you know, you're not getting the really affecting emotional performances of something like a Naughty Dog yeah. game where just the way uh, Troy Baker is delivering a line as Joel is enough to kind of cause you to, to you know, uh, start, you know, start tearing up. Um, this is more like, this is more exaggerated. This is more stylized. And for me, it 
again emphasizes what's the important detail here yeah. what's the information it feels it feels kind of like like um i'm i'm using my uh using some of my drama a level here <laughs> it feels it feels a little bit brechtian in that by removing some of the the emotion emotionality you're you're getting more detail you're getting more of the substance of what what mm. is trying to be conveyed to you w- would you say so You've talked about it sounding like a, a you know, this, referring the sound back to the, the court drawing uh, that you mentioned earlier. Would you say it sounds more like a dramatization of a real event rather than, oh, yeah, absolutely. Rather yeah. than hearing the, better, the real event happening? It's almost it, yeah. more they, like a, They do good work, though they do good work with reverb and volume. Yeah to place the voices in the physical space mm. before you see the physical. So, for instance, Abigail is kind of shouting over the noise of the rain and the waves. You hear yeah, people yeah. coming, like walking across the room and their voice gets loud. You know, the, the reverbs they've chosen for the rooms are yeah. very carefully chosen. You get an idea so of the, the sound space before you see mixing, it. Yeah. yeah, the Foley and the sound mixing is, is I would say, excellent and mm. really places you in there, especially if you've got headphones on. It sounds like everything we're talking about localization would already be difficult. I know we've mentioned it before and I want to give another shout out to Lee Hutchinson's interview with Lucas Pope in Ars Technica from back in May, 2019 about localization. Cause it sounds like, Oh, all these audio snippets are going to be very difficult because having fragments of conversation wouldn't necessarily work from one language to the next. But the thing that really struck me about the difficulty of localization was the book. You're putting together the fates of people. And for us to say, this person, name, rank or role on the ship, was, and then a verb, and then the person who did it, or the thing that did it, or, you know, what happened. Not all languages break down in that way, so what looks like a very simple template for English, and works probably for a lot of similar languages, similarities in terms of structure, it completely breaks down in other languages, because you don't have a simple, this is the verb that you substitute in here, because the the language doesn't work that way. So that really spoke to me as a fascinating part of that. So I would definitely encourage people to go and uh, listen to that because it's not just the simple, the script and the performances and the audio needed to be localized. It's very much the nuts and bolts of the game kind of uh, came under strain during localization. Bridging us uh, on to talk a little bit about the story, as if we haven't already, uh, we're going to hear another piece of forum correspondence from Ashman86 who says, I thought I had a good idea of what to expect heading into Return of the Oberdin. After hearing glowing reviews from friends and critics, I was fully committed and ready to dive into the game with the hilarious premise of playing a 19th century insurance adjuster. I solved the first few sailors' deaths, delighted at how clever the game made me feel and at how elegant the game's core flashback mechanic was. I was curious, too, to learn why the crew had become mutinous and why so few of them were left aboard the ship, but I'll admit that I wasn't sure how long I'd last before historical fiction might bore me and I wondered if I'd be clever enough to piece together the remaining 50-plus sailors in my journal. And then I flash back to the captain's wife's death. I assumed she'd succumbed to sickness on the high seas of some sort, but no. There she was, crushed by the mast of a ship. Then I was, on the deck of a ship, amidst shouts of pain and thunder and pounding rain, the corpse of a man torn in half. I looked up from the gory discovery and saw it, the Kraken. It was a twist I did not see coming at all, and I was compelled to continue playing The Return of the Oberdin and nothing else until I'd finished it. The game had so many other wonderful surprises in store for me, 
solving the death of a man killed by friendly fire as he hid from a monstrous spider crab, the betrayal of Edward Nichols, the captain's final bargain with the merpeople, the monkey's paw, and so many more. By the time I'd solved the last entry in my log, I was both ecstatic to have solved the game's great puzzle and sad to see it end. If only I could erase my memory of the game so that I could start it all over again. A um, recurring sentiment, I think it's fair to say. Here I have listed the chapters of the story and given a link to where more information is given. I don't necessarily think it's worth our time rehashing chapter by chapter. We've talked about some of the kind of key parts of information we uncovered and how it plays into the story, but I wonder how we feel. This is a game that is about building back together. Uh, Josh, you talked about piecing everything together, and you're piecing the story together to work out what happened to all of these 60 people. Um I wonder how we felt about, at the end of the story, seeing it all pieced together. I think, as far as I know, we all got all 60 fates kind of um, tucked away in the book. And, I, it, yeah, how did it come together for each of us? I don't know if, if uh, anyone wants to jump in particularly. I thought quite a lot about the structure, which um, it it is confusing deliberately confusing with the chronology yep. it starts at the end it starts at chapter 10 jumps to chapter 7 jumps to chapter 2 i think i can't remember and then works its way back um which i liked you know it's fun it's always fun to start at the end and work your way back and that that particular point of going to the doom from the end is a great touch um and he he pulls that off a couple of times. It did the the final mystery did feel underwhelming mm. to me. I remember having that last little that missing chapter kind of calls to you throughout the whole thing, like oh, what must have happened? Yeah. And having the whole coda of the game, but it's there's no final kind of difficult taxing puzzle. No. Um, and the actual revelation is kind of like uh okay whatever then and it's kind of confusing to try and remember and place it back into context of the rest of the story yeah. so he's very very successful earlier on in the game going through the different stages but i i doesn't quite stick the landing yeah i i agree with that i mm. i think that um i'm not sure maybe if, if they could have removed a different part of the story and and given it to you at the last part but yeah. it just yeah it didn't seem like that delivered a revelation uh, what I will say about the the story as a whole is it's it's an interesting kind of East India trading company analog of like all of this happened because you took some stuff that wasn't yours. You know that it's that it's very <laughs> much a kind of like colonialism thing of both For stealing sure. property and eventually people or mermaids. You know, in this case, but mm -hmm. but the idea of having this kind of like giant karmic justice uh brought upon the ship because they were doing the kind of thing that the east india trading company was doing with with real people and real cultures for its entire existence is is a fun little little commentary on that and i don't i don't yeah. think it goes particularly deep but it's certainly satisfying to see um i don't want to say that i'm glad that all the people uh got ripped apart but in real life uh there were very few repercussions for the people who 
did yeah. this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, there was no karma <laughs> balance to, to come yes. back at them. Yeah, are you, Jacob, are you saying it's about the cycle of violence? <laughs> I'm, I'm maybe not saying that, <laughs> but it is, it is nice that there are consequences yeah. for theft for once. <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> yeah, I mean, saying. You, you do really come to hate Nichols quite quickly, don't you? You, you, you just want to see him get his comeuppance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, kind of the that's the that's my interest in chapter eight, the bargain, which is hidden. And I th- I thought it was for me anticlimactic to be put in a room at multiple different points during the the story, but not really being able to place exactly when it's happening in the story, despite the fact clearly it's several different times. But I think the thing that's interesting about that and why I think it's the linchpin that or that Lucas Pope thought it was is. You have the captain, one of the mates, and the doctor all trying in their own different ways to rid the ship of this curse, to solve the problem of the curse. And it's where it brings their three actions together, attempting to break the curse. All from different perspectives, all trying different things, and obviously the monkey paw being this wonderful, (laughs) literal monkey paw um that that <laughs> you get there in in that but each of them t- making their bargain for how they're going to solve this problem how they're going to get this curse lifted from the ship i thought that was interesting i saw why it was put there but to be stuck in this room out of place in the ship it made sense why the lazarette was the room that you couldn't get into because it's literally the locked room um but it being stuck in there and not having a a place of reference for what was going on elsewhere did make it feel a little anticlimactic to me definitely um it, there's there's an sorry go oh, on. i was just gonna say it is interesting that the um the end is kind of an acknowledgement that uh whoever is sending you the the journal and the mm. the clock and stuff like knows how it works you know the idea that yep. that they sent you the monkey's paw because they knew that that would allow you to go back into yep. the scene is this kind of gesture at like what is the broader universe here like wh- who owns the yep. stopwatch and what do they do with it? Well, and, and uh, technically, did Henry Evans not send you the memento mortem as well because it was his journal that was sent to you to be returned with the right? Yes, with the device. So he clearly knew the device and knew it could be used, but it just wasn't going to be him that was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I think there's a there's an alternate universe, uh, and I know this is wrong, because of the game is very tight and it's a one man band designing it. But there's an alternate universe where you could add just a little bit extra context around who you are, how you got the book, you know, the, at the beginning and end of the game that might have just made the monkey paw a bit more sinister like i don't know just as the credits are about to roll something unfortunate happens to you in your do you know what i mean so so to give more of yeah. a sense of your character more of a sense of kind of the curse has escaped and, to, to give you a a, um, a a role in the story and not just observer of the story i suppose in some way yeah i of course, I can understand why yeah. you know why they. It's already a very ambitious game. To add more ambition yeah. is not necessary. But I think the monkey paw is such a kind of last weird, cursed mystery element to throw in. I felt it was a bit wasted that late in the story. I honestly saw it just as a a kind of a a joke, essentially. 
like the the monkey paw is the thing that he cuts off and throws in there so you have you know it, it takes rather so you have something that you can use the memento mortem to get back to that memory it's why he throws the monkey in there and has it killed at a, a pertinent time in the story and it just ends up being it's yeah. not the cursed monkey paw it's just a, a joke uh you know a wordplay essentially mm. um in in it in a chapter of, of the book but um yeah it's it's he he does that in 1802 hmm. he doesn't know who you know in he sort of has the presence of mind to do it when all of this other stuff has gone wrong and loads of other people have been ripped to shreds and he's the ship's doctor to have thought that oh someone's going to investigate this i'll send them the he must he would have needed to know that he would escape as well and there was absolutely well, no guarantee and, and also that, and that, also that as it turns out would have needed to assume possibly that Parrot, who in his dying breath freed one of the mermaids with a shell and asked them to bring the ship back home would have to know that that gambit had been attempted and was likely to to work potentially because otherwise that ship could have just been lost completely and no one would ever have known it was yeah definitely a long shot but yeah um speaking of of which quickly on that uh kind of easter egg i guess that you mentioned earlier thomas the glint in the ocean, to me, I don't know if anyone disagrees with this, is very definitely that is the glint of the shell and that's the mermaid that brought this ship back home. Um, for sure. Yeah. Like, no no doubt in my mind. Because at first I saw the glint and thought that's just supposed to be the glint of the ocean. But it's there in exactly the same place the whole time. And then when you see it around the shell, it's unmistakable. Um, mm. What I don't quite understand mm. is why the mermaid would agree anything to, to help these people at all. I've, I never quite. There's some things in my mind in the story that don't yeah. quite make. It doesn't feel quite that satisfying to kind of tie it all up. Yeah, I, 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 I guessed it was just the mermaid recognized that whether they deserved to be freed or, or you know, had been wrongfully captured. Uh, you know, they were fighting back against the the ship, but they recognized there was. Uh, you are being freed. Here is the shell as a gesture of goodwill and wanted to return that uh, by taking the ship home. But yeah, it, it takes a reach and it, it, by all rights, the mermaid was, you know, the one who was first in essence, uh, not attacked, but brought there by the shell being um, revealed by um, Nichols. I mean, I, yeah, I, it gets more tangled though, because I, I'm not quite sure with the Formosans, they had possession of the shell in the first place. Was that the original sin that they shouldn't have had this shell because they'd stolen uh, it from the sea creatures, and then it was unle- yeah. you know, and then it was stolen and unleashed, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's where all this misfortune. So, is it the Formosans in the first place who are actually they at the least bad seem guys to understand what the shell was and how to keep it safe? Whereas uh, Nichols' issue was being not only a thief but an incompetent one who didn't understand what he was meddling with in the first place um so mm, it, yeah for for me his sin if you like is the one that brought the mermaids there but yeah where the shells came from is as much a mystery as where the memento mortem came from um and there were three shells weren't there and we the the end that you start with is the question of whether the captain kept the other shells and i wasn't 100 percent sure whether that was answered in the game i have to say this this feels the most like everybody's gone to the rapture actually, which is piecing together slightly out of order the different sto- bits of the story yeah. uh, across several different characters. And I found that that had a very st- 
strong emotive end um that kind of built to this emotional climax that left me feeling very satisfied mm. and um yeah just generally i think happier across all of the threads whereas this i love as a puzzle game and i actually think the more i think about the story the less i enjoy it so i think it's it's yeah it's it, uh, even here now, I think just digging into it and, and saying these things that I'm not quite sure about makes me think slightly less of the game. And actually, it's possibly better to just, you know, not think too deeply about the actual chronological story. Hmm. Um, Josh, I don't think we've heard from you on your feelings about the story and, and the ending and, and whether the story lives up to the kind of mechanical uh, promise that was sowed in terms of uncovering the puzzle. I, I mean, I I largely, I largely agree with what's mm. already been said. Um, uh, for me, like the ending was kind of a yeah. formality. Um, it's it was more about like I I see this this game as like a series of episodic mm. stories, and I found a lot of joy in those individual things. The the macro level kind of stuff you know i i don't think it comes together particularly well but then there's just all this little stuff um like the 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 kind of the friendship between the the midshipmen and and the the kind of taking the mick out of each other one of them kind of froze up over yeah the stuff um, the cow, yeah. they would i forget what they were yeah. doing but yeah like those little little mm. interactions those little dramas or are, are you know those things gave me enough satisfaction and enough and and enough joy that i i didn't need this to be tied up with a neat bow i i was I was fine um, for the things to play out the way they did. Excellent. Uh, in terms of the endings, just quickly, there are three different endings, but they differ by some dialogue from um, you as the insurance investigators made and the letter that you received from Henry Evans. And I can roughly sum them up as, if you get 0 to 27 fates solved, you get a letter uh, where Henry Evans regrets giving you the task that you were so clearly ill-equipped for. Um, (laughs) and 28 to 57 fates which uh, 58 triggers the the ability to see the bargain uh, the hidden chapter so uh, if you get more than half essentially but not the full number of fates um, determined you get an appreciation of your efforts essentially um, and hope that maybe the mystery can can be be, be solved sometime in the future Um, and then if you get the 58 fates you get a letter of gratitude that you went the full length and uncovered everything in the whole story and here is the gift of the monkey's paw that allows you to access the bargain and see the the last two fates um see that hmm. that that reminds me of papers please which has multiple endings not to spoil papers please i'll try not to hmm. but oh, i hope he never listens to this i don't think lucas pope's quite got the kind of multiple ending thing down mm-hmm. i don't know that this would be a satisfactory satisfactory game at all not getting the last chapter and even then i personally didn't find that seeing the last chapter was all that satisfactory but i definitely wouldn't have been satisfied not having it and having the gap in my yeah. knowledge and the gap in the yeah book. i so i agree yeah. with that like like a game like the witness you don't have to solve every puzzle you can no. still get an ending that feels 
you know, genuine, like, oh, yeah. I, I did it. Uh, this does not, you know, like, uh, I think my friend and I accidentally triggered the appreciation thing at some point because we were like, oh, we'll just go back down to the boat and see what's going on. And then, mm-hmm. and then the game ended. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't I can't imagine who would do that and and be like, yep, finish the game. It just doesn't <laughs> feel doesn't feel complete. No, sure. Yeah, no, I think um, in that sense that my feeling on the endings are it's um, they're obviously distinct, but. I didn't feel, oh wow, I got to see this because I did all of, uh, you know, went and and, uh, determined all of the fates. It was very much an internal motivation of, no, I want to see this through, even if I treated it as checking the names of a list. I didn't because there was clearly more to uncover about who was responsible and and who did what to whom and and how, as Joshua said, the lives of these people on a ship just in the day-to-day bumped up against one another. Um, there was always more information to be had, but I actually, at the first point when I got to the end of here, you've seen the the chapters available, the nine chapters you have available, um, and you get the oh the weather's coming in quick, get down to the boat. I thought, are they, are they going to let me? So first I thought, oh they're going to let me go, and then I can pour through the book to to do all this afterwards. And then as I was approaching it, I thought, oh, or are they actually going to let me just finish the game? And sure enough, immediately got the regret ending and the credits and then went back in. And it was obviously I didn't intend to finish there. I just wanted to see what would happen if I went, because it's very much a, um open world RPG thing of, oh, you've got to get to the next mission and you're told the weather's coming and you need to go. So why would I assume I could just dally around on the ship? So yeah. I just thought it'd be fun to see what they happened. Do- but- it's something that's in her story and telling lies where the musical cues come in that those stories and kind of make you hurry up a bit, mm. like give a false sense of that there's a there's a timer running yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was definitely but yeah, definitely. I actually don't think that works very well for this type of game. I think just just filling in the lines with that weird skull on the back page. That's enough for me. I love yeah. that. You know, I just getting to 100% of that page, getting all those lines filled up. Great. I love getting three things. And then it says, well done. That is, uh, you know, to have the coda. I think it's it's funny because I played um, uh, uh, The Sexy Brutale, mm-hmm. which is a time based time jumping puzzle game yep. as well. Also with quite a disappointing final um kind of puzzle thing that tries to wrap around the whole you know tries to bookend the story uh maybe it's just difficult to do i don't know maybe i would have preferred a game that was just like right reach 58 fates uh wrap it all up and then if you got the foot you know if you got all of the the got all of them will show you a bit of story at the end rather than get you to play a bit of story at the end or make that bit of story more of a revelation that's like, wow, okay, that's the secret piece of the the puzzle that knits it all together. But I think it just sort of falls short on all of that, unfortunately. Mm. That sounds like we've ended on a bit of a downer, but I suspect that when we come to summarise, we're going to uptick a little on uh, a lot, let's face it, on, on this game. Um, in terms of the legacy of this game, uh, one of our forum correspondents earlier did say that they um, wanted to see more detective games like this. And I'm not sure, we've mentioned games that it's similar to, but I'm not sure any of them I would say, oh, that game exists because of Return of the Oberdin. And maybe that's because Return of the Oberdin is only just over two years old and it took um, 
you know longer than that to make so anyone who's going to make a game off the back of having played this uh, or inspired by this is not going to have released that yet but in terms of Lucas Pope himself I did find another Ars Technica interview uh, clearly somewhere that has um, the ability to get Lucas Pope in for interviews this time um, <laughs> uh, apologies for pronunciation of surname Sam Makovec or Makovec I don't know how that your surname is pronounced Machkovic Machkovic yeah no you might be right there I think I've completely butchered it yeah Sam Machkovic we'll go with uh, your pronunciation Tom and that way you can take the blame if it's wrong um, <laughs> there was a interview from Uncharted to Oberdin, kind of charting Lucas Pope's uh, career to January 2019 so a few few months after this game was released um and he said that he intended this to be a smaller game he felt papers please gave him an ability to just make small things that he wanted and this game ballooned i imagine due to the aforementioned research he must have done that josh pointed to and uh, this was a much bigger game than he intended and he reasserted his intention to to make smaller uh games uh going forward so we'll see how that works out I suspect <laughs> we may be seeing a similar thing next time around from Lucas Pope. Uh, but there we go. That was the only uh, immediate sort of line of legacy from Return of the Oberdin that I could think of um, or could could spot. It It's very much, I mean, uh, if anyone's been listening to Mike Bithell's podcasts, that he's on, he's on a couple of different ones, and his point about the nemesis system in mm. Shadow of Mordor, he just sort of says... Video games, very iterative. Video game designers are very comfortable stealing from one another. Oh, yeah. um, and and when you see something like the Nemesis system, uh, you should everyone should wave the flag and say, look, steal this. Everybody, steal this, please. This is brilliant. Put it in your game. Uh, and I think this definitely, as much as this is a game where it's like, oh, I wish I could erase my memory to play it again. For me and my wife, we were definitely like, oh, it would be so great to just get more mm. of these. Lit- Literally, this exact mechanic, different historical setting, brilliant. Or you know, slightly different type of game, but still the still the three. You know, uh, working out three things and then it gives you a dopamine hit. Perfect. Still that. Um, you're you're right that it's possibly too early for that, but it's it's like with the Nemesis mm-hmm. system. It's something I'd like to see people steal. Right. Uh, as always, you have heard from our forum correspondents. Um, we post Jay kindly posts. Um, forum threads for every upcoming as yet uh detailed upcoming uh kin rinse issue when the volume is announced they went up so you have plenty of time to go and uh, leave your feedback for any of the shows we're doing thank you very much to our forum correspondents who did that but there is a shorter way to interact with the show on the day of recording uh in this case with about three hours to spare um <laughs> there will be a tweet goes out from the kane and rinse twitter um account and uh, we will ask for you to review the game in three words. No more, no less. And we have one each of these to read. Jacob, I wonder if you could start us off, please. Yes. Toonskatoon says, Nifty Nautical Note Taker. Blue Weasel Breath. Striking visual style. Simon Sloth says, I feel clever. And I left this one for myself. I felt stupid. Also by Simon Sloth. <laughs> Uh, there we go. We have returned the Oberdin, but we have not finished writing off our, our own final chapters, our own uh, summaries. I wonder if, Josh, you would perhaps start us off. I think the fact that, I, I know I mentioned it in the recording, but I think the fact that 
um, I could sit there with somebody who lives mm. and breathes this stuff and it not be a situation where they got that wrong, that's not right, what are they doing? But like a joyous experience for somebody like that of feeling like like this person cared, like this person cared enough to read the stuff that I read, to look at the documents that I look at, to to care about the way the ship is structured, all of that stuff. So I think this is a real victory of of um, research and caring about that kind of micro level detail, so that the fantastical stuff, all the crack, the kraken, the crab people, the mermaids, all of that stuff feels grounded in a reality that these people existed in. Um, but beyond that, and and speaking more to my own personal experience of this, I think it's aesthetically just astounding, uh, and a credit to what you can do um, when you're a one-person team with a minimal budget and um, maybe you know I, I say minimal budget. Um, uh, Papers Please was quite successful, but like you know, you haven't got all these hands on deck to to help you out with all these with all these different systems and all these different mechanics. So you have to be uh, efficient. You have to be you have to make sacrifices about what you choose to focus on and what you don't choose to focus on. And the fact that Oberdin looks as good as it does, sounds as great as it does, um, it's such a triumph aesthetically. It shows that you don't need a bajillion dollars and the the latest in uh, rendering technology in order to make something truly beautiful and eye-catching. Um, I think this is a brilliant game. I love it to pieces, uh, and I highly recommend it. Thank you very much. Um, I put myself next because I thought I was going to be by far the most negative on this, and as often happens when I come in kind of feeling a little bit kind of down on a game, talking to people who are enthusiastic about the game just stokes my enthusiasm for it, I have to say. Um, And the, the negativity comes from... I felt I was given the tools to be a detective, but had to, not had to, but the first part of the game, the first, I mean, two to three hours of about a 12-hour playthrough was spent not doing much detecting and feeling like I didn't have the ability yet to use some of the tools I'd clearly already been given. And that was a bit of sort of delayed. It split the game for me. Um, but what I can't deny and what talking to um, talking to the panel here and thinking about the game and, and putting this um issue of the podcast together has really confirmed for me is that delving into this book and this ship and this game this the story as presented and the puzzle as presented um i was encouraged to use tools that i don't often get to use playing a video game a puzzle is often find the right answer and there's an aspect of that here but that wasn't necessarily um the driving force behind it i was picking through information that was laid out ahead of me. Some of it was relevant, some of it wasn't. It was sorting and sifting through all of these puzzle pieces in front of me to try and find the ones that fitted fitted together. And they didn't necessarily, it wasn't a case of, oh, I found the one that solved everything. It was, no, I've just got two pieces here, they fit together, I've found out something about what this picture overall is going to look like at the end. And although the overall picture, when the end came together, wasn't a revelation in the way that I maybe expected something to change about uh, 
my appreciation for the story when it all came together and it didn't but what that doesn't change is that as i was putting each one of those pieces as i was connecting it to one other every little revelation i had was powerful really powerful in a way that that i've not experienced in many puzzle games before um it wasn't just pick the right answer out of this collection of of wrong answers um it was very much find the story uh find the threads pull on them until you can piece together um the story that, that you see uh, the one that was given to me but also putting my perspective on it and teaching me something along the way i didn't have um, a cat sat next to me i i did however have the ability to learn something about uh, uh, uh time periods that i shamefully don't know that much about and a um an aspect of history that i i know little about as well in, in terms of who people are on a ship and how they relate to one another and um you know that kind of thing there was a lot to be found there i really enjoyed that and talking to um the three of you about it shows me that actually uh i think this might be a secret co-op game and i just didn't know it until i spoke to you about it um not having someone to bounce ideas off as i was playing i think possibly did uh did the game a little disservice but did not diminish uh, a fantastic game for me uh thomas you chose this game in fact as your pick for this year and we've left it late in the year to cover it but here you are i wonder if you would uh, fill us in on your thoughts on uh, return of the Oberdin. I'd like to thank you, James, because you've just done a lot of hard work in going through all of the details of the puzzle solving and everything so that I don't have to. <laughs> I can just now say all of that, all of the above, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to vibe with what Jacob's going to follow up. Uh, I just love this game. It's it's tight. It's It feels uh, somewhat perfect for what I... Uh, it definitely met my expectations apart from maybe just the ending. Um but um, it wasn't terrible, but it didn't ruin the whole experience. I just loved filling up those lines uh, with my wife, um, making those jumps. I really liked uh, kind of having a fate which I knew was solid mm -hmm. and then having two which I wanted to play around with, often from the same chapter, often from the same scene or could be, you know, um, the the two people were in one scene or one of them died in that one and one of them died in the next one and just having fun trying out different uh, permutations of name and fate and, and and that and that i think when it comes down comes down to it when i was playing it by myself the second time that was actually the most fun but uh the first time around with my wife brilliant kind of couch co-op game um she was spotting stuff i wouldn't have thought to look at she was making connections i wouldn't have thought at it mm. was very um satisfying in that way and yeah just as a as a former sort of medium history buff having just come off the assassin's creed odyssey show as well i just love really well done historical settings mm. really well researched in assassin's creed odyssey obviously the detail of art and everything is just beyond it's just staggering here it's the opposite it's the it's, there are graphical details in here, sure, but it's none of that attention to high fidelity and all of the attention to um, the mechanics of the boat and the social strata of the crew and their interaction. Um, 
yeah, just absolutely tight, fantastic game. Hearty recommend. Maybe if you don't think of yourself as a particular fan of puzzle games, um, and if you know that you get very impatient with kind of inductive and deductive reasoning, um, you may bounce off it, but it's still worth a try. Um, I don't even know. I picked up for eight quid on the Switch or something during a sale, the most recent sale. That's nothing for a game of this quality. So hearty recommend. Um, works really well on the Switch, actually. I really enjoyed playing it on the Switch uh, the second time round. Um, works well in handheld mode even even then. So, uh, yeah, definitely check it out. Excellent. Okay, and last of all, with a summary, uh, Jacob, would you be able to tell us what you thought of Return of the Oberdin, please? Yeah, I think my the kind of the primary adjective that comes to my mind with this game is just clever. You know that that I think the the design of the game is clever. I think all of the aesthetics are are incredibly clever. Um, I I had a great time playing it through with a friend. You know, there are not many games, even many puzzle games, that I feel like can really be shared. Um, as an experience and this is a great one and and that is just such a fun thing to be able to do with someone else um i it's not a game that i emotionally connect with um which is not required of all games but certainly is kind of the thing that puts games in the upper pantheon for me and and clever does not quite get too heartfelt in the way that i sometimes look for um, but as just kind of a, a curious, interesting, you know, hopefully start of a genre, I do think that it's it's just like it's just a good piece of game design. And that's that's really where I end with it. That is the end of our summaries. That's the end of our discussion. It remains for me, James, to thank Jacob, Josh and Tom, our editor, Jay, all of our correspondents, both in short and long form. Plus, of course, every single one of you for listening. Next time, it's issue 445, Mario Kart DS. What does DS stand for, you ask? Devil Survivor? Dragon Sword? Dark Souls? Deadly Silence? 